this season, we've been reflecting on the concept of home. We've explored the shifting nature of home and the flavors and textures that connect us to it. We've celebrated the creativity of those who bring together ingredients from the many places that have shaped them. If I could sum up what we've learned from our guests and our reflections so far, I would say that home is something we long for on a visceral level, but it's something that we never can quite pin down. Home is as much a feeling as it is a physical location, or perhaps even more. I open every interview with the question, what does home taste like for you? I've been struck each time by my guests' response. While some have suggested flavors that have a distinct tie to a geographic location, all have described the myriad scents and sounds that invoke the feeling of belonging. How would you answer the question? What does home taste like for you? Today we're going to examine the ways home changes across time and place. And we'll learn how food can bring us back to ourselves when the concept of home is too hard to pin down. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Kitchen Meditations is made possible by a generous community of donors. We here at the Edible Theology Project want to thank all of you for your support of our work. If you haven't given to our fundraiser yet, we would love you to consider joining us in bridging the communion table and the kitchen table with a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation. To learn more, visit www.edibletheology.com slash fundraiser. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that your food can connect you to the many generations who have gone before. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the Liturgy for a House Blessing from the Book of Common Prayer. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale. Grant this home, and as you exhale, the grace of your presence. Our guest today is Reem Asil. Reem is a chef, community organizer, and founder of the bakery and restaurant Reem's California. She is also author of the recently released cookbook, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. Welcome, Reem. I am so thrilled to have you here. Thanks for having me. So the first question is a question that I ask of all of my guests, and they can take it in any direction that they desire. But I think it's fair to say that your entire book kind of answers this question. (laughs) You write in the beginning that this book is not just about food, but the communities and cultures that inform it. And so with that in mind, I'm 
curious, what does home taste like for you? Mm. Home, uh, home, it's, it's not just so much about taste, but it's about smell and sight and sound. It's like all those experiences all at once. But if I had to boil it down to one kind of sensory experience, um, I would say home, um, smells like lots of herbs. Fresh, yeah. fresh, and uh, cooked. A um, lot of spices, um, notes of coriander and allspice, and um, yeah. And then home for me um, always uh, sounds like the pressure cooker because that's <laughs> how I grew up. <laughs> I love that. Back before there was the the Instapot. The Instapot. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more about the different places that you and your family have called home? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I'm a child of Palestinian and Syrian immigrants. Um, my, my parents met in Beirut in the late seventies, early eighties, um, right off of a really tough civil war. And, um, you know, my mom was always like, if, if somebody from the, North Pole were to ask for my hand in marriage, I'd move to the North Pole. Like just she wanted anywhere, you know. And um funny enough, they moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That was the first place they settled. Uh and to say that was a culture shock would be an understatement. Um, but that was home for a little bit until they settled in a very small suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. That that is what we call home. Um that is what they called home for a very long time. I think for people in diaspora who've been forced from their homelands, you know, we talk about the homeland a lot. You know, my mom used to talk about Palestine. That's, you know, originally where she's from, but more of a concept than a place. Um, she has now lived in the U S more than she's lived in those places. So, um, you know, for, for all intensive purposes or for better or for worse, <laughs> that yeah. is home to my parents. Um, home was a much more elusive concept for me. Um, you know, when you think about home, you think about what is, what are the places that you feel at ease, a sense of belonging, uh, like you, you're a part of something. And, um, that never, it never felt that way growing up, uh, in the East coast. Um, but in our summer trips to California, which is where my mom's side of the family relocated in San Fernando Valley, there was a lot of Arabs and like, we would all converge at my grandmother's house and that felt like home, even though we didn't live there, that, that, um, felt like home. And so I yearned to have that experience again, which is probably what called me to California, uh, when I moved here in 2003 and, you know, never turned back. Um, and you know, now I've been in the Bay area in Oakland specifically for almost 20 years. And wow. I can now say that, you know, this has been the home for me. Um, and, uh, you know, it may not be, uh, forever. Uh, we know that unfortunately because of gentrification and rising costs, uh, sometimes even when places feel culturally home, they become very difficult to live in as a home, you know, 
You describe in your book how food became a source of emotional or even spiritual comfort for you in seasons of burnout. And <laughs> your work as a baker connected you to your ancestors. And I wonder if you could share a bit more about that experience. Yeah. Well, food had always played a role in my life, whether I liked it or not. It's funny, when I became a chef, a lot of my friends in college were like, oh, yeah, we could have seen that. And I had no idea. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. like, oh, really? You know, my relationship with, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say food per se, but the act, the act mm. of serving, the act of cooking, the act of baking um, was so much an extension of myself that it became so natural that I didn't realize that it was a thing, right? It's just yeah. part of your muscle memory. And, um, and I see that in my mom, like, and I see that in my aunties and uncles, like, you come in, like, let me cook for you, let me serve you. Like, yeah. it's just common. It's like, second nature. Um, so food had always kind of been uh, a healing force for me. But it was also um, a, the deprivation of it was a sense of trauma for me, um, I think, from a very young age. Um, you know, in my culture, when you're like a little bit chubbier, that means you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're losing weight, people are like, what's wrong? What's happening? Mm -hmm. You know, and so for me, when I would get stressed, um, whether it was intentional or not, my body would just kind of shut down and that, that deprivation of sustenance um, became a source of pain, right? Um, and I had bouts of sickness uh, from a very, very young age where I would end up in the hospital for a long time and then have to relearn how to enjoy food again. Um, and, you know, so my relationship to food had always been evolving. And then you, you tack on cultural, <laughs> the cultural food ways and the confusion of like food in the home versus food in school and you know, a marker of my other identity, uh, that was a source of pain for a very long time. And it took, uh, it took a lot of therapy <laughs> and journeying um, to, to reclaim those foods as an adult. Um, but I think uh, when I moved, so I, I had a, and I talk about this in the book, I had a really bad bout of uh, severe acid reflux in which I was not able to eat at all. And I was, you know, it's a chicken and the egg thing, you know, what caused the other, but it, it um, sunk me into a deep, darker depression. And I moved out to the Bay to just find something, you know, find mm -hmm. some meaning of life. And there it is. Food became kind of the way, um, food and activism simultaneously became the way to return back to myself. And it was through the foods of my people and my ancestors that I was able to do that. And so I almost feel like food is just a conduit for connection, for your ancestors calling back to you, for your community calling you in. Um, for me, certainly it was like for my literally medical, physical healing. Um, and so I owe a lot to the people in my life who taught me that food is not just this thing you put in your mouth, but it's it's an experience, right? Um, and I learned to enjoy life again, not enjoy food, but enjoy life again, you know, and yeah. food just was an entry point to that. So yeah, yeah, I vowed to myself that I wanted to do that for other people in the way that it had been done for me in my lowest of lows in my life. We so much on this podcast, we're really thinking about this tension of how food can be this 
source of incredible pain and also the source of incredible healing at the same time. And how do we navigate that tension and how do we really lean into the ways it can be a source of healing? And and I find it almost ironic that it's like, that it's almost the same dynamics that can make it one or the other. And it, it really takes probing kind of how do we use this in a right. positive sense to... I think for me, I was passive in my life. You know, there was all these, you know, sources of oppression and pressure. And, and so you just kind of go with the flow and you you just kind of accept what's handed to you. But when you take something and relate to it on your own terms, it's so powerful, you know. And so ironically, I never wanted to be in the kitchen. Like I, you know, I grew up in a very traditional family. My mom was really untraditional. She was like a working mom. and she was really trying to defy the stereotypes of, you know, what an Arab woman should be or all of these things. And I was like, yeah, I'm never going to, you know, I saw her struggle to, you know, live her own life, but also be a homemaker. And I didn't want that, you know, I didn't want that for myself. And so I was like, okay, when food, like when you cook and it's expected of you, it just takes the joy out of it. So, you know, that was something that I learned, you know, in retrospect now is like, I am learning to serve and cook and do all these things on my own terms in a way that gives me joy, that doesn't deplete me. And yeah. when it does, I have to check myself, you know, especially in this industry, this restaurant industry that is extractive, right? That does pressure you to have to serve on other people's terms. So at Reams, we really try to protect this ethos of like hospitality and food and the sharing and the breaking of bread, that has to be an organic process that's not transactional, right? Everybody needs to participate in it and uphold the dignity of everybody else. And that's what we're trying to do. What I'm trying to do is create my own table, I guess, <laughs> you know, and that table, I, obviously I come with my own contradictions as a, as a human being, all of us do, but hopefully create one that's more liberatory, that everybody has access to knowledge and opportunities to give wisdom and it's like a give and take exchange. I know that in the corner of the industry that I sit in among, you know, I came out of an incubator program called La Cucina that really helped scale my business as a as a woman of color food business owner. They help a lot of immigrant women who who are just so badass and we're just working in the informal economy because they have barriers to formalizing their business. But I would say those were like the most amazing teachers working in that commercial kitchen with them. I'm like, who can bang out 30,000 among six people bang out 30,000 momos in a week. So I, I think that they're, when you make space for communities, particularly those who've had experienced struggle to shine you could learn a lot of things. And that creates innovation in our food system, right? When we, it's not just the same baguettes and, you know, like the same, mm -hmm. you know, you see the bakery model and it's, mm -hmm. you know, tartina is wonderful, yeah. but it's just created the same replicas. Yeah. So how do we, how do we change that and innovate that? And I think yeah. it's by creating these spaces where everyone at the table has a chance to learn and uh, offer. I think it takes so much more knowledge of, say, bread to be able to have made it for generations without scales or thermometers or, you know, to be able to make bread regularly takes so right. much more understanding of bread itself than like this very sort of mechanized 
approach. I think the wisdom of women, the wisdom of women that has existed and been passed on for generations oftentimes gets almost passed over in this professionalization, but it requires even more of this bodily understanding of food. Um, Mm I'm I'm just really interested in the professionalization of bread specifically and the ways that it changes our understanding of what bread is. Does that make sense? Mm. Like the industrialization of it or like the... Well, both the industrialization and kind of the... Um... To me, it almost seems like these ironic opposites of kind of the tartine way of making bread versus mm. like last week I got to learn bread from an Afghan woman here in Durham who she was like, I'm going to teach you how to make my bread. And then she yeah. like just pulls out a bowl and, you know, she doesn't measure anything, doesn't, um, yeah. she just throws it all together. And she's like, well, I've made this every single day since I was 14. Yeah. That is not as valued or prioritized in this kind of professional context, but actually that requires an incredible knowledge of how bread because functions. I'll tell you why, because it's tied to capitalism, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's you, you have to have the same thing every time in order to sell, in order to make a profit, in order to extract from people who are making that thing. Cultures that have been baking, they're just doing it for for a basic honest living. It's almost like a barter system. <laughs> you know, they're just knowing, doing what they know how to do, what's in their blood. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the, the profession, you know, the... The professionalization, I, I think that there can be a professionalization, but it, it comes with its contradictions, right? When you're trying to make a profit off of a relatively low cost item, let's just put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Can you share a bit more? How how have you navigated those contradictions? Yeah, I'm still working on it. You know, we, you know, the Reams model, my restaurants, we charge top dollar for our manushe. I know you can get it for $2 in Lebanon, but it's because our labor is really built into our model. And so that, that bread, all the hands that was on that dough from the time it gets mixed to the time it gets pulled to the time it gets, you know, stretched out and topped to the time it gets baked and served to you, all those hands have been on it. (laughs) And there's real value to like, and that's the product in your hand that is giving you that magical experience. So it's really in the value of people's love and (laughs) labor that, that we build in our pricing. I think, I mean, having a bread product is helpful because we can have a base and then mix and match with different things. And we have a master dough, as I kind of share in the book, that can be reincorporated into 20 different things. And and each thing is its own unique thing. So I think we've figured out ways to navigate around that. But really, for us, it's educating our customers about the Reams ethos and then calling them in to be a part of that. And yeah, I think the people that we want to be Part of our network, our customer base, know that they're not just investing, they're not just buying a flatbread, but they're investing in an ecosystem. It almost seems like an extension of helping guests to understand the extent of hospitality, that like hospitality, you guys extending hospitality them is also an invitation for them to extend hospitality to your team through recognizing all of the labor that goes into creating good things. Your book is, it kind of serves as an invitation for everyone to learn from Arab hospitality. And you write that 
encountering strangers, welcoming them into your home, establishing bonds, and learning from food practices of guests is what has enabled you to survive, or your people. And I'm, I'm wondering, for listeners who might desire to open their homes and learn from others, but sort of feel overwhelmed at where to start, what, do you, what would you recommend as simple steps in to a yeah. deeper understanding of hospitality? I think that for me, when I moved to Oakland, I really tried to get to know my neighborhood, get to know the people and what's culturally relevant. You know, obviously my culture is like front and center in in my restaurants, but so much of it is like the Oakland slant on that or the, you know what I mean? I, I live in Latina. I live both, both my restaurants are in Latinx neighborhoods, so we're going to put corn on our menu, even though corn is not uh, enjoyed <laughs> in the Arab world <laughs> that way, you know. Um, so figuring out what's culturally relevant in your community, like learning from others, accepting other people's hospitality and getting inspired by that. But on a very practical level, having some good frozen things in your freezer so that you can serve at the drop of a dime. <laughs> so when I make, you know, my spinach pies. I never make just a few. I make a lot and then I freeze them. And then when someone comes over, I can pop one in the, in the toaster oven and have something to serve people. There's, I have some recipes for some like nut mixes and, you know, snacks, just simple snacks, seeds, nuts. And in, in my culture, we love to offer coffee. (laughs) As, as kind of the thing, right? Coffee or tea. So those are some basic, like, very practical things that you can have on hand so you can host at the drop of a dime. But when you are approaching recipes and if you do get Arabia, which I, you know, shamelessly, (laughs) (laughs) there are a lot of easy recipes that you can, you can can take and freeze and, and offer Mm -hmm. as kind of a a snack. Do you have any kinds of like rhythms or rituals in your family surrounding food? Yeah, um, I think the big ones uh, are uh, spinach pie making, for sure. My mom always used to make spinach pies, so we would just sit there and shape shape pies all morning. Uh, for, for like potlucks and special occasions, or if we were inviting a lot of people over, and that's like a communal activity. That's a communal activity. And then during the holidays, Eid, we we make a cookie called mamul, which is a semolina dough. And it's stuffed with walnut, cinnamon, sugar, and walnuts or with dates. And you put it in this like beautiful wooden mold. And it's really fun. You like slam the mold on the <laughs> table. Uh, so we, we partake in that <laughs> together. That was like a really fun thing grape leaf stuffing I wasn't that good at it but I watched my sisters and my mom do it <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of communal acts that I associate with my mom because she was a working mom so like the week- weekend mornings when we did that stuff it was really a nice treat like you go really feel like you're part of a culture right but at my grandmother's house all the time there were there were like stations and activities happening all the time and if you were so lucky you would be put on a task but she was a commander of her kitchen, but it was just fun watching all of that, you know, the cutting of herbs, the shelling of fava beans, whatever, whatever it was, but she like put people to work. Do you continue on any of these with your own? You have one child, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we don't yet, but uh, baking is a big part of 
uh, my rituals with him. He loves mixing. He loves throwing things into a bowl and measuring. So I like pre-measure everything and then have him do it. And so he can see the act of, you know, the alchemy of flour and water and all of these things turning into dough. So that's exciting for him. He's a bread fiend. So that was lucky for me. So yeah, he loves making, watching me make things from scratch. If you had to give a kitchen tip of some kind, like a tip that you think everyone needs to know that would help make their kitchen just a more efficient or more fun or better place to be. I would say invest in a scale. (laughs) Not only does it make your food more accurate, but it makes less dishes because you can just throw and tear and throw everything into a bowl. So I feel like that was life-changing once I got a scale in my kitchen. And they're not that expensive. So many people are intimidated by them, but they're so, they're not expensive and they're so great to work with. You can get them from Bed Bath & Beyond or whatnot. And yeah, they can, I always, I have like sort of my base of things that I always have on hand, which is like the garlic, onion, lemons, and herbs in my, my refrigerator and my pantry. So having those on hand, no matter what, you can make something. <laughs> <laughs> and if your herbs will, not not a big deal. Just wrap them and freeze them. My grandmother used to freeze them and then she'd bring them back out and put them into Ooh. stock or chop that's, them up. That's such a helpful tip. Yeah. So for listeners who would like to continue following you in your work, where can they find you in in real life and also on the internet. IRL, as the young ones would say. <laughs> Online, you can find me. I most I most often hang out on the IG. Um, my handle is reem.aseal. You can follow Reem's California and what we're doing. We're, we're, you know, expanding and doing some big things. That's Reem's California, at Reem's California. And... Um, you can also check us out on our website, www.reamscalifornia.com. There's a link to purchasing the cookbook there. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's been so, so wonderful to chat with you. Thanks for having me. I just can't let go of something Reem said. For people in diaspora, the homeland is more a concept than a place. It's about cultural belonging, about feeling at ease. We are shaped by the places we have called home and by the places our family has called home, but that place is a bit nebulous. Neighborhoods, cities, even countries change over time, and we change too. What grounds us is a shared collective memory of the sense, tastes, feelings invoked by a location. And those memories can be passed down generation by generation, even to those who have never lived in the location itself. I love how Reem describes food as a conduit of connection to her ancestors, calling her back to herself. It connects her to the people who have shaped her and to the places that have shaped them. It reminds her who she is and where she comes from. This familial grounding allows her to find belonging in the food she makes and the tables she sets today. Inhale. Grant this home, exhale, the grace of your presence. And now, to close, a prayer for the foods of those in diaspora. God of Matthew, the scribe of Jesus' detailed genealogy, 
You care about the people who have come before us. You care about our ancestors and the places they've called home. You care about the ones who've been displaced and the impact that's left on each generation. Help me recover a sense of home and the scents and tastes that nourished them. Thank you for the gift of connecting with the past in such tangible, tasteable ways. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or friends. Need some help getting to that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com, and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to the Edible Theology team, especially our producer, Jason Rugg, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify. Then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.